As you turn with me, please, in Joshua, Joshua chapter 10, I want you to know, going into this particular chapter, as with the others, there's a lot of bloodshed. It troubled me some um, to try to, um, to figure this all out. Joshua was given the promised land, Joshua and the people of Israel. God had told him to go in and take the land. He has given it to them. And so they are going to do battle against different tribes that are in that land that will come against them. They've already did battle against Jericho. They've already done battle against Ai. And when they were going to do battle against the Canaanites, they came to them and and asked them and, and, and tricked them into making a promise with them that they would not come against them. The Gibeonites, I should say. And so where we've come to now is in the 10th chapter. I'm going to read it with you in a moment. There's no excusing it. It is a bloodbath. And some might wonder why. I've heard often those that don't believe in our God have asked questions on why is, if God is such a God of love, why is there such wars going on and all of that? Well, you need to know as we read through this that God had given the people that are going to do battle against the Gibeonites. He has given these people 430 years to repent. They would not. And so what we are going to see is what God will do to those that refuse, refuse to repent. In this whole process, as we're going to read God gave every single person that repented, He gave them salvation. We cannot stiffen or harden our neck against the God of this universe. It is not a wise thing to do. Now in this chapter, this bloody battle of Joshua conquering the five Amorite kings of the south is very interesting because, in, as we're going to read in a moment, in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, it, it contains an account of what is called the long day of Joshua, where God stopped the sun, stopped the moon, and paused the day long enough for Joshua to have victory in his battle. It fosters a question amongst many people, which is asked by skeptics as well as saints alike. They ask, did the sun truly, did the day truly stand still? I don't know how you answer that, do you? You and I were not there. The question shouldn't be, did God stop the day? Did He stop the sun so that the battle could take place? No, the question that really needs to, to be asked is whether, whether God could stop the sun, whether he could stop the day and make it stand still if he so desires. I think the answer is, is resounding, yes, if he so desires. As a matter of fact, if you, if you want to turn with me, you can look. In Jeremiah chapter 32 and Jeremiah, uh, both, chapter, both verses 17 and 27 are in Jeremiah chapter 32. In verse 17, it says this, 
when we respond to the greatness of God. We, the people, say in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing, it says, is too difficult for you. If you look again now a little bit further ahead in verse 27, God speaks and he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And then he says, Is anything too difficult for me? The answer is a resounding. No, nothing is too difficult for you. You can do anything that you desire. You are God Almighty. And so we believe what is what is said by Luke in the first chapter of Luke, verse 37, when, when he says that nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. So to argue, as some do, I mean, books and chapters are written. Did God stop this day? What was it? Was it poetic language? What was meant by he stopped the sun and he stopped the day and made it go slower? Listen, whatever he did... He helped Joshua in Israel. And I have no trouble believing that that he stopped the day if he so desired. It doesn't really matter to me. Because truly, folks, you and I need to come to that place where we believe nothing, nothing, nothing would be impossible or too difficult for our God to do. So whether this truly happens here, as we're going to read in a moment or not, is not really an issue with me. What is at issue is what has taken place in all of this in the 10th chapter. Read with me. It's a long chapter. But it is a narrative of how Joshua went against these five kings and destroyed, utterly destroyed, every single one of them along with all of their people. Chapter 10 of Joshua, verse 1. Now it came about, when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai, and that he had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, the king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, the king of Eglon, saying, Come with me, help me, Let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. And so the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up with all of their armies, and they camped by Gibeon and fought against it. It says in verse 6, Then... The men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua and to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all 
the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So it says, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord God said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So it says in verse 9, Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confronted or confounded them before Israel. And he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. He pursued them by the way of the ascent from Beth Haran and struck them as far as Asiak, I think it says, and Machia. And it came about as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Asiak. Azakak, I think, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with their sword. Verse 12, just beginning. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still at Gibeon. And O moon in the valley of Ajalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nations avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like it before or after when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. Now these five kings had fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave of, in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by, by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. It came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained with them had entered the fortified cities, that all the people returned to the camp to, the camp to Joshua at Makedia in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. And Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua, that Joshua called for the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come here and put your feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not fear nor be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies with whom you fight. 
So afterwards, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hung them from five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua commanded it, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also with its king to the hands of Israel. And he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivors in it. Thus he did to the king just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then, verse 31, Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. And they camped by it and fought against it. The Lord gave Lachish to the hands of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it, and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, a king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. Joshua defeated him and his people until he left him no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they camped by it and fought against it. They captured it on the day and struck it by the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Verse 36. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it. And they captured it and struck it and its king and all of its cities and all the persons who were with it or, or were in it with the edge of the sword he left no survivor according to all he had done to Eglon he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it verse 38 then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to Debra and they fought against it he captured it and its kings and all of its cities and they struck them with the edge of the sword and he utterly destroyed every person who was in it he left no survivor, just as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Deber and its king, as he also done to Libna and its king. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded and Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. That's tough reading, is it not? To read these words, you and I need to have extraordinary faith in our extraordinary God. We need to realize that God does not just haphazardly kill people. 
God gave these people over 430 years to, the, to repent. If you recall, there was a young woman that was in that countryside by the name of Rahab the harlot. And she repented and gave her life to the Lord. And he saved her just that quickly. He would have done that to anyone and everyone who came to him. And so instead of looking at the brutal destroying of humanity, we need to remember the wonderful graciousness of our God. Now, what I would love to do, if you will give me the time and your attention, I would love to try to solve with you some of these things that took place and see how it lives out its life within us today. We are now today called a people of peace. But how did that which happened in Joshua chapter 10, how does that relate to you and me today here in the year 2009 in this the Yorba Linda and the Orange County area where you and I live? And I say to you, there is much to learn from this. Let's pray first. Father, please, open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. It is difficult, Father, for us to understand all that you do. You tell us clearly that, that we'll never be able to comprehend who you are and what you do because your thoughts are far beyond ours, higher than ours and more greater than ours. What you ask of us is what you would ask of everybody that has ever lived, and that is to trust in you by faith. And so please, Father, move me aside. Please, Father, open up our eyes, our hearts, so that we might make sense of this very brutal chapter where so many people were killed. May we make sense of it, I pray, Father, in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, let's start from the beginning. Verses 1 through 6 share a very great le lesson. We see the five Canaanite kings become frightened by the alliance that Joshua made with the Gibeonites in the ninth chapter as we studied last week. He made a, uh, he made a, a, a promise, a vow to them that he would not treat them poorly. Look at Joshua chapter 9 just for a moment. Joshua called them in verse 22 and he says, You've deceived me. We were very far from you when you are really living in our land. Now therefore you're going to be cursed. You're going to never cease from being a slave. But he says in verse 26, Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. He made a promise to these people to care for them the rest of their lives. And so the, Gibbon, uh, the, the, the Canaanites gathered together and become frightened over what he did with the Gibeonites. And so they declare war on Gibeon. And they attacked Gibeon immediately. Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. They gathered themselves together to do war against the Gibeonites. And immediately Gibeon sent a call to Joshua. Look at verse 6. 
As soon as they realized they were in trouble, the men at Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal. And they said to Joshua, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us. Help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. They are going to kill us. You see, when danger struck the Gibeonites, they immediately believed Joshua's promise to protect them. And so they called on him for their protection. Let's pause there for a moment. That is exactly what you and I need to do when we find ourselves facing the battles of life. And trouble hits our lives, so to speak. The Gibeonites turned their burden over to Joshua. And they trusted Joshua to keep his word and protect them. And so he did. That every single one of us would follow the Gibeonites' example. When they knew they were heading for trouble, they came to Joshua. Joshua's name means Jehovah is Savior. And so you and I have attained a promise from God. When we come to believe and trust in Him, He has said to us, He will never leave us, He will never forsake us, He will protect us all the days of our lives. And so we need to go to Him, as the Gibeonites did to Joshua, and call upon His promise of protection within our own lives. Immediately we are told in verse 7 that Joshua came up from Gilgal. Gilgal is an important place. Gilgal is where the Israelites camped while they were taking over this land that has been just given them, this promised land. And so they come from Gilgal and they did war against these five kings. It was one of the most, as you and I have just read, one of the most brutal battles in all of history. It takes place from verse 7 throughout the whole chapter. In verses 7 to 15, though, God intervened on behalf of His promise with His people. He delayed the nightfall. He lengthened the day in order that victory would be complete and final for Joshua and Israel. And then, to top it off, top it off, folks, in verse 11, we are told that God Himself rained large hailstones upon Israel's enemy from heaven itself. Now before you and I judge God for His actions, we need to remember He gave these people 420, 430 years to repent, to change their minds, whether they would turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or not. God had made it known to them that He was given the land to Israel. No secret. They knew that. God told those people He would save anyone who would turn to Him. Yes, He would save any single person who would turn to Him. As I said to you earlier, remember the harlot Rahab? 
she said in the second chapter that we've read in this book, in the 10th verse, she said, We have heard how the Lord your God dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And she turned to his, to their God in faith. And she believed in their God. And she was saved. And if Rahab could have been saved, anybody who would just turn to God could have been saved. However, these folks here, these five kings and all of their people chose not to believe. They chose to reject God's mercy. And people, listen, before you and I judge God's actions, we need to know that once we turn against His mercy and we reject His mercy, His judgment will sooner or later come upon every single one of us who refuse to believe in Him. His message has never changed. It has been the same throughout all of life. He loves the world, the Bible tells us, and He loves you and He loves me. And He gave His only begotten Son to every single one of us if we will just believe in His Son. But so many people say that's too far-fetched. I don't like that way to God. I prefer another way. And when they choose that other way, they call upon their own selves judgment. Because God says there is but one way. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and you cannot. Nobody can come to the Father but through me. Now that's either true or it's not. And for those who say that's too narrow-minded, God is just too narrow-minded. I, I can't just come through Jesus. I must come another way. When they do that, that is their choice. But then they won't fall upon God's mercy. They will then fall upon His judgment. And so God's message has never changed. His promise is, if you believe in Him, you will never perish. It says in 2 Peter 3.9, but the question is, will you perish if you do not believe? And the answer is clearly yes, yes. And this is what is happening to these folks, these five kings and all of their people who rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They refused. They refused to believe God. And God patiently waited upon them for 430 years years and they kept saying no 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 now the outcome might not sound nice to you or me we'd like to have it otherwise but this is the way it is written and the word of god must be read and understood every single line of it we can't duck and hide we must understand why did God do what He did? He did what He did because those people passed on His mercy and they received His judgment. The result of this action is described. It's very interesting what took place once Israel started to defeat these five kings, these five kings and their people. Look with me at verse 21. Once these actions started to take place, and once God rained hailstone from heaven upon these people, 
and killed so many of them. It says, verse 21, All the people returned to the camp, to Joshua at Macadia. They returned in peace. And we see that no one, no one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. From this battle forward, from this battle in chapter 10 forward, the people of God were firmly established in the land of Canaan. People began to fear and to respect these people from Israel, supported by God's supernatural powers. Let's stop there for a moment. That's the way the church is supposed to be today. The church today is to be a place where we are to be feared, but really that word fear means respected, loved. We are made up of people, we are to be made up of people who are uncompromising in our testimony. But how many of us are? We are to be made up of people who are courageous in our faith. But how many of us are? We are to be made up of people who are holy in our lives, set apart for the purpose of God. But how many of us are in our lives? One of the commentators wrote, and I copied his words. He said, we ought to be a church where people fear to come in through those doors lest they too become saved like us. That they would fall in love with our Savior because of the way we live, the testimonies that we have, the faith that we have, and the holy lives that we live. There should be an awe and respect upon this church that is demanded by every single one of us in the fear and the presence of our God. Oh, that we would have a place where you, the people of our church, and me, the preacher of this church, would be respected. That we would live lives that would be exemplary. And people would see God in and through what we do, what we say, how we act, and all the things we do within this community. I want you to look back again and in verse 17, we see that the five kings now reacted differently towards Israel and Joshua. They, they hid in caves. Why would they have to hide in caves? They were a great and powerful army. I'll tell you why. It was because they, they respected, they feared Israel now. They knew that Israel was a, a group of people who were supported by the amazing power, the supernatural powers of their God. And so should we be. It was all because of Gilgal. Remember when I told you in verse 7, it says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal. The people stayed at Gilgal. It was at Gilgal, folks, if you remember back, where all of Israel had a change of heart. Every one of them. It was because at Gilgal, in our place, it would be Calvary, where the cross was, where Jesus Christ died for our sins. That we too have a change of heart. 
It was at Gilgal where they went through the, the Jordan River and there was a sign that they died to themselves. It is at Calvary where you and I come to Christ and ask Him to forgive us of our sins and where we die to ourselves. It was at Gilgal where they, where they were symbolically resurrected with God. They rose from the dead as they went through the Jordan River to a new life, to a new beginning, to baptism. It is because of Calvary and what Jesus Christ did for you and me that when we go through baptism, we go into a death and come back up out of the waters into a new life. It was because of Gilgal that now the five kings were hiding from Joshua and the people of Israel. Gilgal was their place of repentance. It is where they cast off their old sin, their old lives, and started new and afresh with the Lord their God. It is at Calvary where our sins have been wiped away, where you and I can start a new life, where people would look at us with, with respect because of not who we are, but because of the Savior whom we love. It was at Gilgal. It was at Gilgal when Joshua was run, walking, it said, in, in, the, in the evening time. And he saw uh, someone standing in a distance and it, 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 it looked like a, a, an officer of an army. And when he walked up to him, it was the captain. He came to him with his sword drawn and, and he explained to Joshua that it was he, Jesus Christ, who came in in form of a human being at that time as a man with his sword drawn. It is our Savior who protects us. So Gilgal was not just a place of beginning for Israel in this new land. It was a place of continuing. It was a place of finishing the course. Just as our walk with Jesus Christ through the cross at Calvary is not a one-time issue. It's not just a one-time thing that we do and we say, I've got everlasting, eternal life. Now I'm fine. No, our time with Jesus Christ through Calvary is not a one-time action. It is a permanent attitude that we have of faith day in and day out for the rest of our lives to be committed to Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 23, If any of you love me, he says, you will keep what? You will keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, it is an ongoing commitment. You will continue to keep my commandments. And so our walk with Jesus Christ, as we've said here over and over again, for the five years that we've formulated a, a, a church that the Lord God has opened for us and given us pleasure to have people come and hear the Word of God preach. This walk with Jesus Christ that you and I have is not about where we began our walk. It is all about how we finish, how we walk with Him day by day, moment by moment, loving Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. So now I've got to close this place with this truth. It's tough. It is a tough truth. But it is truth nonetheless. 
Here's where Joshua takes those five kings, brings them into the camp for everyone to see. Read with me. It's too hard to believe. Just if I say it to you, it's just, it, it, it takes your breath away, really. Look at verse 24. It came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua, that Joshua called for the men of Israel. He said to the chief of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on their necks. And they came and they put their feet. They stood with all the men of Israel there to see. Joshua called the five leaders and he says, put, their, put your foot on their neck. That's not politically very correct, folks. And so they did. Boom. They put their foot on their necks. You think that would be humiliation enough, would you not? Well, ultimately after that, it says in verse... 26, afterwards Joshua then struck these five kings down and put them to death and he hanged them on a tree. Five different trees for five different kings. Would you not say that's a little rough? I mean, really, that, that is tough to preach. How do you preach something like this? These poor fellows, they were hiding in caves. Basically, they had given up. No, but they were pulled out. They were forced to lie down in front of everybody to humiliate them by having their enemies' feet put on their necks. And then Joshua hung them. What's the point? What in the world is the point? How mean must he have been, you might ask. Let me tell you what the what the comparative of that is to you and me today. We're not to do that to people literally. But the comparison of that is what we are to do with sin. You see, the whole issue of these five kings were sin that, that came against Israel. And there will be no victory in your life, your life, there will be no victory in your lives, in your lives. There will be no victory in my life until we declare an all-out war on sin. That we will no longer tolerate sin. Why not send them back to the cave until they learned their lesson? Isn't Joshua a little bit cruel? Let me get very personal with you. Are you not glad that your sins are forgiven, completely forgiven? Are you not glad to know that there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus? Are you not glad to know that you are on a sure-footed, true and secure road to heaven itself when you and I are buried, our loved ones can know for sure where we will go to be in the very arms of our Savior. But on the other hand, does it not sadden you to know that there's sin still lurking in your life? Could it be within you and me there are sins that have never really been humiliated yet? By putting our foot on its neck, 
and been put to death once and for all? No, I think so many Christians today recognize the sin but put it back in the cave. Let, let it hide in the cave, the cave of our hearts. And we never slay it. And you perhaps wonder why your testimony isn't as radiant as, as you wish it were. That your walk with Christ is not as effective and consistent and ongoing as you had hoped it would be. Could it not be? Because every once in a while, rushing out from that cave within our hearts, before we know it comes this sin that we have tried to deal with five times, ten, fifty, a hundred before we know it, we're in the midst of the battle with that sin. The problem is with most of us today as believers in Jesus Christ, we refuse to kill that sin. We refuse to come against it, to humiliate it, to judge it, to condemn it, to confess it before our God. Christian, listen. What you and I learn from this chapter is this. We are in a spiritual war. The comparison between Joshua and the book of Ephesians tells us just that. You and I are to put on the full armor of God because just like we read in Joshua, God allowed us to read all of the terribleness that occurred in that place so that we might recognize that we too are at war. And we need to put our foot on the neck of sin. We need to put our foot on the neck of pornography if that's bothering you. Put our foot on the neck of alcohol if that's bothering you. Put our foot on the neck of anger if that comes out in your life. And stop it. Humiliate it once and for all and put it to death. That's what's happening here in the book of Joshua. God's allowing you and me to see the dirty laundry so that we might become serious with our faith. I think most Christians today think we're in a dress rehearsal. And just before I die, I'm going to say, Lord, you know those things I did? I'm really sorry. Forgive me. When in fact, He wants you and me to be warriors. He wants you and me to be a people who are are through, are finished with this enemy that's called sin that comes against us. That we put our foot on its neck and we flat kill it. We are in warfare. We are in warfare. And that is what Joshua chapter 10 is trying to let you and me see. It's not pretty, but so that we might be a people who are feared, really revered, loved by the community. We need to live holy lives, folks, every single one of us. Now I asked for a couple minutes and we have it. 
maybe you can lower the lights and maybe we can just maybe think for a moment. Maybe you think, has God spoken to you? Is there, is there things in your life that keep coming back, keep haunting you? Could it be that it's still hidden in the caves of your heart and you've not really done away with it? You've not humiliated it, confessed it, named it for exactly what it is, and asked for God's forgiveness, and then put it to death. Ask your Lord, your God, to put to death those things that keep coming back, haunting you over and over and over again and say to that sin no more. I will put you to death. So right now I'm just going to be quiet and I'm just going to sit up here and the fact of the matter is I'm going to humiliate some of my sin. I'm going to ask the Lord to help me put it to death. Father, bless each of us. I love these people so much. I pray you bless us as we go. I pray if there's some here that just wants to deal with you, they can do it where they're seated. They can come up front. doesn't matter. Lord, thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.